Hope you had a great week. I don't know about you, but the summer is rolling. It is rolling. We have three Wednesdays left together, so um, we are more than halfway through this study, which is pretty incredible. It seems like we just got started. Um, Let's pray, and then we're going to dig in deep. Hope you felt like you've been digging in deep, so we're going to dig in deep. Everybody's going, yes, yes. Let's pray. God, we just come to you, um, and uh, I, you know, thank you. Just hearts of gratitude. I, I'm thinking about. Um, I guess I have sort of our small group from yesterday morning still on my heart, and we all came together yesterday and just kind of felt like we needed to run away. <laughs> just you know, one of those weeks kind of things, God. And I, I don't know, maybe. Maybe we aren't the only ones, or I'm not the only one that sort of felt the pressure of a week. And uh, maybe even trying to get the study through and you know, working through it and, and feeling like it's um, such a challenge, a challenge maybe to complete, a challenge, God, maybe to take on every word that you speak to us and desire it so much in our lives. And so, God, I'm going to thank you for the desire that you place in our hearts, that we do have desire. And then I'm going to thank you for the faith that you give us, your spirit gives us, because our faith becomes active just by believing that you will do the work in us. And that's such an incredible thought, that, that we start with an increase in asking for desire and in asking for a deeper place of faith so that, God, that you can work in us. You do the work. We've got to cooperate, but you do the work. So, God, as we look into these four, five, six verses, packed absolutely full, that, God, I'm just asking you would give us a desire and a hunger and truly a love, a compelling kind of love to put our faith to action. I'm just reminded, and it's just echoes of the Holy Spirit, just he reminds and reminds and reminds to become doers of this word, not merely listeners and hearers, but doers, practicers. And God, I just thank you. We just thank you for your spirit, Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Teach us. Your word is alive. I pray that, again, just the soil of our hearts, that we are tilling it so that you can plant your word deep within us so that we can bear much fruit, good fruit, lasting fruit, eternal fruit for your glory. God, I thank you for each woman who has come, and I know that you do have something very specific for each one, a word. And we thank you that you do love us and that you are such a personal God. Thank you for the truth that appears in your word, that it is truth. and it is truly eternal, and it stands firm in the heavens. And we praise your name for it, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take our our Bibles and turn to James chapter 3. And um, in our study guide, we're on page 126, and you'll be following along and filling in some key words as we go along. I hope you are... Um, having the opportunity at least to go to the level where you're writing the book of James. I know many of you are, are doing that. Maybe you're doing it as you have time during the week. But it's such an impactful way to see it, write it, think it through, whether you do it. Sometimes I found myself rather than, uh, you know, maybe this is, I don't think it's the rebellion in me, but sometimes I find myself writing it after I finish the day instead of at the beginning. I don't know if that's good or not, but sometimes I feel like I've gone through that part of the study and then I want to write it after that. But 
at any rate, whichever, whichever way. All right, James chapter 3. Let's look at verses 13 through 18. This is um, our study concluded, our five days of, of study concluded on these, at these verses. And uh, we have, as I say, full, just completely, absolutely full of um, words that are tremendously impactful for our lives. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. As we um, step into these verses, at the top of your um, guide in your study book, there's a couple, there's a question, and she has prefaced it by um, a couple of sentences, just something to think about. For those of us who were willing, the opening pages of week four sketch James's signature verses across our, heart, across our hearts. Long after our journey is over, you and I will know its mission was accomplished if we're still willing to ask ourselves the very prying question, when it comes to my faith, what good is it? What good is it? We have done, our first day really um, started the week off with um, some great thought, I hope, some investigation in Scripture. <clears throat> and we um, looked at many New Testament verses along with James's words that were inspired by God, talking about the connection between faith and works. And you'll have time to um, discuss this in your small groups, but just so that we're all on the same page and so that we're all thinking through the same way tonight as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want to be clear on two things. One is that we know that our salvation is never earned by works. It is a free gift. It is something that we cannot work for. It is something that we do not earn. It is something that God has, the work is done through Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, his substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, our belief in that, and then um, the gift of eternal life, salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn that. We do not deserve it. It's God's grace and it's his mercy. So salvation is never earned by what we do or what we can't, and we cannot lose it by what we don't do or what we do. Ephesians is very clear that the Holy Spirit comes. He comes and, and seals that decision within us. And it is complete until the day that we are um, redeemed. There's absolutely nothing that can rob you of that. Nothing that you can do that removes that seal. Nothing that you can do more that would increase the Holy Spirit indwelling within you. It's a sealed. It's, God does the work. You cannot do the work. What we begin to talk about in James as we think about faith and works is now this process of sanctification and what God continues to do in us through our faith and the works that he has called you to do. And as Ephesians says, as Paul wrote, that he has created these things, you are his workmanship to do the things in Christ that he created you to do and for me to do. So there's now a connection as believers, as Christ followers, that there are things that God has prepared for us to do. It is the things that he's called us to do. It's the things that we are um, in the process of as God is doing a work in us to create us into his image. And yet there is also this work, this external works that he's called us to do, which, by the way, you're spirit, supernaturally equipped by the Spirit to do with the spiritual equipping, the, the spiritual gifts that he gives us so that we can make him known, so that we are equipped not only as individuals but as the church 
um, universal that we can we have the empowerment in the ministry to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth it's it's a perfect perfect plan it's God's perfect plan it's God's perfect equipping of the church it's God's perfect equipping for you and its mission the whole the goal is so that people will know Jesus Christ they will receive the free gift of salvation so that they in turn can go and do. That's, that's what we see. And it, there's, there is not controversy from Genesis to Revelation about that. So as we, look about, as we look at this, what good is your faith? The question is not what good is your faith in accordance to salvation. It's what good is your faith in the world? In other words, how effective does your faith make any difference in the world around you? What you believe, is it making any difference in your sphere of influence? That what we believe is affecting the decisions that we make, the words that we say, how we are living life, the impact that we have, the fruit that we bear, is it good? <clears throat> and I would say that are we succeeding through that? Now, I don't want to put that word success in a sense of an earthly way, but when we're thinking about faith and the works that we're created to do, are we seeing that being accomplished in our lives? We have recently been through a couple of sermon series here at Renovation about... <clears throat> Um, thinking through the next maybe year, thinking through the next five years, thinking through up through 2020, it's kind of a challenge to think eight years in advance, um, even to the challenge of 10 years, of thinking exactly, uh, working, working through, looking at, thinking, well, really, where, where do I want to be in five years? What, what, what would I like my life to look like in eight years? What would, I, what would I like for my life to look like? Maybe you're just thinking if I can look at it tomorrow would be nice. You know, if I can get through today. But you see what I'm saying? And I think what, as I was doing this study, in fact, every week, this has just been on the back of my mind constantly because I think about this question, what good is my faith? And if we're not intentional now about beginning to think about those things, then we wake up 10 years, we wake up in 2020, we wake up in five years, we wake up in 10 years, and we look exactly the same, and we've lived with a lot of good intentions and never anything that's been followed through. So the question becomes, how do, how do I want my world, how do I want to affect the world around me with my faith? What does that look like? What good is it? What good is it doing in the world around us? However God has called you to make that impact. It could be just as, as close-knit as your family. It could be further. And it's going to change. It changes through life stages. You can sit around every single table and know that it changes through that. And the sphere may be what seems to you very small right now is still very impactful, but it can continue to grow and grow and grow. Just give God the opportunity. But when you begin to think about how is my faith affecting the world around me? What I believe I am doing. What I believe is what I am doing. What I believe about God is affecting my choices. And the faith that it requires to take a step based on who God is rather than based on the known factors around you. It begins to transform and literally, literally renovate the way that we think. So we want to investigate tonight about what good is our faith? Why is the world better off because of my faith? And James clearly, clearly gives us these, um, these words back in. I'm going to step back into chapter 2. Verse 17, this is sort of a, um, a signature, this is a signature verse coming out of the book of James, that in the same way, faith by itself, it, if it is not accompanied by action, what does he say? I mean, it's dead. He doesn't say it's like half alive. You know, it's kind of breathing. He clearly says faith without works or faith without action. What does he say? What is it? 
It's dead. It's absolutely dead. So there is an obvious connection between our faith and action. That we have, by, as our faith increases, as we exercise faith, we are compelled to act upon it. If we are studying God's word, if we are in it, if we are, if we are doing more than just listening to it, if we're walking out of a, of, uh, a teaching, if we're walking out on Sunday morning, and, and basically what we're doing is walking in and we're going, you know, that was pretty good. You know, I enjoyed that. That was great. You know, kind of grading it. Last week was better. I hope next week looks, you know, I didn't really like this. That would, If that's kind of the way we're walking in and out of a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or any other kind of Bible study, then our faith is, is not acting. We're not taking what we're seeing out of the Word and putting it into practice. Instead of looking at it going, that's difficult, we're going, okay, God, let's practice this. I believe what you say. I'm almost would say 100% without doing the absolute investigation myself that anything that God challenges us to do, there's a promise that comes behind it. If he says, this is taming of your tongue, this is the result of it. And until we say, okay, I believe that promise, I'm going to have faith, God, that you will follow through that in my life, I will put that into practice, and then there's a blessing and a promise that follows after it. I cannot think of anywhere in Scripture that we don't see that in tandem every single time. That's what faith with action becomes. Instead of simply going, okay, I believe that, but never doing it. Never putting it into practice. Never really putting the rubber to the road on something. And the worst thing we can do is go, I'm just like it, that. I'm just made this way. I can't change that. It's not true. It's not true. But it takes the faith to know that God will do the work. It takes our desire and our cooperation to begin to put that faith into practice. Because he's saying your faith is dead. You can talk about it all day long. And I would, I would say, thinking about, because my heart has been captivated with this book this time about the early church. If the early church has simply talked about their faith, I don't know that we'd be sitting here. If they had simply talked, and I'm going to, as we get into this later, I'll give you some very specific examples about what the early church did based on their faith. But if the early church had simply just talked, had committee meetings and had, you know, whatever, team meetings and, you know, sat, I don't know, would we be here? Faith without action is dead. My faith without action is dead. Faith with action, then, is alive. I love the reverse of that. Faith with action is very much alive, and it gives the Holy Spirit some room to do some work. We walk by faith, not by sight. So in following through on the action, do I always see the results? Do you always see the results in what God is, can do through us? No. No, absolutely not. But we do in obedience what the Word says by faith, and God will handle the rest. It's the beauty of faith. It's what He's called us to do. It says that is what pleases Him. All right, the key word um, is going to pop up again in James 3.13, and it offers us a prime opportunity uh, to start looking at this uh, question that Beth poses to us. And the question is, as we look at 3.13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. So the question becomes, well, what is the good life? What is the good life? What an interesting question that you could ask anybody around you what they would consider the good life. I think we live in a pretty good area of the country. In fact, we live in an area where in, in my job, all the time when I'm talking to people, a lot of times they are here on vacation and they cannot wait to move here. You know, it's like this, they, when they look at somebody who's lived here, they're thinking, you have got it so good. You've got it so good. You're living the good life here at the beach. And they cannot wait to move here. They can't wait to be a part. It's almost like sometimes, and I know they're excited, you know, they want to, 
they want to move down here, they want to be in the sunny south, and they want to be at the beach, and they, you know, it's just, in, in life, just amazing here, everything just goes away, it's perfect here, it's absolutely perfect, it's so perfect here in the south, it is to me, but, but I'm thinking, it caught, this week, because of the study, as I was asking people, I really began to ask a little bit more questions about that, and almost every conversation, if it was somebody about my age, and they were working to get here, you know, in three years I'm moving, you know, we've already bought property, we're, we're making all of our plans to get here, and I'm thinking that's, you know, just on the surface, I mean, I obviously didn't sit down with the book of James and go, tell me about the good life, but just, just listening to them talking was like they have spent their whole life, just couldn't wait, and then what they're thinking is they're going to get here and they're going to have the good life. You know, some of us work our whole lives thinking at some point we'll achieve a good life, or if we think we have that, we've achieved a good life, or if we just had this, or when this happens to us, we'll have the good life. Well, what Scripture's telling us and what we're looking at this as we look at these Scriptures, this is God's definition of what a good life is all about. It doesn't matter what age, where we're living, what season of life we're in. What Jesus came and what he promised to us was that we would have life and we would have it abundantly, a full life. And sometimes I have to ask that question of me and I ask God when I don't feel like it's an abundant life. I know it's not because God told me something that wasn't true. It's just I'm not living something out. Because he promised he came to give me abundant life, full life, good life. And so our definition of good life may not be the beach access and, you know, the sunny south and every day where it never rains and it's everything's peachy keen and you never have any problems. That's not it at all. The biblical definition, one of them comes right out of the book of James. The first point that you can fill in about living the good life, what is the good life? It would be defined in the scripture as one that saves us from ourselves. And that comes from verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So in other words, if we live a life where we have given our lives away, that's a good life. That's the definition of a good life. Selfish ambition, which we did, we did the work this week of understanding about selfish ambition and where that comes from, and literally the selfish ambition that causes us to chase after the things that glorify ourselves, which literally will lead, if you think about the monster that selfish ambition does, what it can do in our lives, is it creates a place of insecurity. Because selfish ambition, there's never enough. And what we will do is, and as women, we are so good at it, we begin to compare. And we begin to look at what others have or what they look like or what we want to be or we would rather be and then we are caught in this cycle of selfish ambition, insecurity, and depression. And it just can cycle through every single season of our lives. And I don't mind admitting saying that there are points when we get, ladies, maybe it's just me, we hit those mile markers of age. And they're tough ones sometimes as we begin to, to, to move up in age. And we begin to think about those things. And instead of looking forward, we're looking back and we're looking around. And it can create a place of such insecurity within us and comparing and wishing that we need to be saved from ourselves. And so what God has defined, he, what he, how he defines a good life, he said, you give yourself away. You give yourself away. He was teaching the church teaching the church not to have selfish ambition, but to give ourselves away. And the question is right, give ourselves away to who? First and foremost, to Christ. And as he has um, equipped us, we will give ourselves away to the world. 
And you have to be in a, in a true place of peace and security of who we are in Christ. One, to be able to do that in a healthy manner. And second of all, to be able to do that in such a manner where that we're not comparing. We looked at last week with no prejudice, no judgment whatsoever because we're secure in Christ. We're not tormented by our own insecurity or insecurities that just plague our minds. They're, it's pure and it's free of those things. As we look at James 17, 3.17 in the New King, King James Version, and this is printed um, on the screen as well, but it's also in your guide. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Now, this is from the King James Version. Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. If we begin to put those two concepts together of denying ourselves or saving, being saved from the, just the gluttony of serving ourselves and become a good life where we're willing to yield. Now, what does that mean? In this context, if we look at, we're going to look at another verse to get a, a better understanding of that. But if you think about, and I have, I, when I go to work north, there's a yield sign that I come to every single time that I have to come to a stop, but there's a yield coming um, going into Calabash. There's a yield coming in on the other side. And it literally, what does that mean? If you're coming in to yield, that means you're looking to let someone else have the right of way, right? You're slowing down long enough to let somebody else go ahead. It's a beautiful concept when we look at this idea of being free from ourselves and being willing to yield to someone else, letting them to just go on through, to pass on through. Some of us deal with some pretty difficult people in our lives, maybe, possibly, and there are times in, um, with godly wisdom where sometimes we just, we will hold on to selfish ambition we will hold on to what we think is right. We will hold on to a position and stance. And maybe through the wisdom of God and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, it's time to just yield the right away and let God deal with that. Because we will harbor the bitterness. We will harbor the anger. We will harbor the unforgiveness. But what I love about the thought of this, now hang on to that, because when we see this next point, as you think about that, if we have this, the second point is if, if to have a good life is one with a track record of yielding that's being in place in our lives. And if we think about the wording in Matthew 27, 50, this maybe is a very familiar verse to, to you where it says that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And we know that in the NIV, it talks about he committed his spirit. Remember, we know those words on the cross. He committed his spirit. Where did, who did he commit his spirit to? Was it just thrown out there? Who did he commit his spirit to? He committed it. He yielded it. In the King James Version is the word he yielded it. He yielded it up to. It's an incredible, incredible verse when we think about it. It says, again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And in the Greek word, it's printed in, there on the, the text as well, the Greek word, atheomi, it means to send forth. It means to send forth. So let's put all of this together about this concept. We want to hold, sometimes we just want to hold on to our rights, don't we? We want to hold on to ourselves. We want to hold on to selfish ambition. We want to hold on to unforgiveness. We want to hold on to envy. We want to hold on to jealousy. We want to hold on to those things because somehow or another in our heads, we think that brings security. Somehow we think that brings control over the situation. If I just hang on to that, somehow I can control that situation. And what the scriptures, a good life, means that we will yield it up. Yield it up to whom? This is what I love about when I was studying this and looking at this. It makes so much sense because we're going to yield that up to God. It's not just throwing it out there. It's just not saying that, you know, I'm just releasing all of that. 
It's literally taking those emotions that we have that we are struggling with, that we've held on to for so long, and you know you're not living a good, abundant life because of it. This scripture is freeing. This is freeing. Because what God is saying is, yield that up to me. Yield it up to me. So that the Holy Spirit can literally cleanse that away. And it makes so much sense to me. It makes so much sense because it releases you. It's freeing to you. As you yield that up to him. It's just like saying, go ahead. Some of it is holding that. Some of it is in a very, um, in a sense of comparison. There is no one on the face of the earth that competes more than I do. Nobody. In fact, I'm going to kind of tell on, but it, you know, when something is posted on Facebook, it just becomes, you know, world news. And I'm going to kind of uh, pick a little bit on somebody that's only six but I could just feel her. I could feel what she felt. And um, Walt posted a picture, I don't know, it's been a couple of weeks ago maybe, that Alex went and played putt-putt. And apparently Alex didn't like her putt-putt score at all, I guess. And she took the scorecard and just tore it to pieces. She's that competitive. I understood. I'm sitting here going, I'm 51 years old, and I would tear my putt-putt card up too. <laughs> I would. I would tear it up. I, I, I quit playing golf 20 years ago because if it says par whatever, I'm going to shoot par whatever. And the last hole I ever hit was right at, uh, yeah, yeah. First hole took a swing, and I'm pretty competitive, I'm pretty athletic, took a swing at the ball, and it went, the, the ball went this way. My club went in the bag, in the and I have never hit a golf ball again. Does that even tell you how competitive I can be? It is, I am that competitive. And God has really, really had to do a work. I mean, it literally, really. I mean, me and Alex, we would, we would be tough on each other on the putt-putt. But, um, you know, and I think about that because I, it can drive me. It can literally drive me. And I can remember the competitiveness of, of in younger years being that way. And now it's yielding up to encouraging someone to do something better than me. That's a, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. When we begin to think about ministry, or we begin to think about maybe something that we started or we begun, and then we're going to push along somebody else and encourage them. Think about somebody in your life that you need to come alongside, that you're encouraging them. Maybe you see something in them, that they're, they're coming alongside, they're sort of doing the same thing in ministry that you're doing or even in the workplace, and there's just that little bit of competitiveness in it that you hope they don't do quite as well as you do. You know, you know what I'm saying? But you know that you could help them. You know that you could train them. You know that you see potential in them that, yeah, maybe they'll do better than I can. And you begin to come alongside. That's giving up yourself. And if there was ever a place on the face of the planet to do that, it's in the body of Christ. There's no place for jealousy and selfish ambition and not coming alongside somebody else and encouraging them to take their spiritual gifting and praying for them that they'll do it better than you ever thought you could. Amazing that would be in the body of Christ instead of the competition that can occur to yield ourselves up and allow that person to really come through. A lot of different scenarios of looking at this, but it builds the church and it grows the gospel instead of hanging on to that so tightly. So a good life is one with the track record of yielding to send forth that up to God and just send that person right on through. That last sentence there on that first page on 126 is keep in mind a vital difference in motivation that we yield out of wisdom from above, 
not out of fear below. And that's always good to think about when we think about things like unforgiveness or situations, relationships, because we certainly don't yield to abuse. And we certainly don't yield to unsafe situations. And we certainly don't yield to physical abuse or mental abuse or any of the bullying or any of that. That is not what it's about. That's not what God is saying. That's saying you get yourself to someplace that's safe. And then through godly counsel and godly discernment, the actions that are taken. It's not simply yielding that person to be abusive to us. That's not what, that's not what this statement is saying. It's not yielding to a child to literally control the family. It's not yielding parenting. It's not yielding that what's, it's not yielding structure and discipline whatsoever. It's looking at a situation and yielding it to God so that it can be handled. Is that clear? That's under, that's, we understand that. It's very important. All right, thirdly, so a good life could be defined by someone that is free from ourselves, someone with a track record of yielding. Third, one that is full of mercy, full of mercy. This comes from verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, and full of mercy, full of mercy. In James 5, verse 11 and 12, and we can peek over at that briefly, but we'll see that in verse 11, it says, As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about it. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So a good life is defined by a life that is full of mercy. And a life that is full of mercy is clearly defined as a life that is full of the Holy Spirit to live out compassion and to live out mercy is being a life given over to the Spirit so that He can do that work in us of mercy and compassion. All right, mercy and compassion, if you think about it, this is logical, this is simple, this is not deep, but mercy and compassion is active, is it not? Mercy and compassion has to be active. And mercy and compassion is not defined as mercy and compassion on ourselves. Mercy and compassion is driven to act through faith to make a difference. To make a difference. Now here's where it becomes difficult. Here's where I think it becomes very overwhelming. Here's where I think we look at situations around us and even on a national global scale, we're thinking, how in the world can I make a difference? How can my faith be of any good in such overwhelming situations? And really, the enemy can get such a foothold there, because what we'll do is we'll, be, we'll just back out, because we'll just think it's too much. It's too draining. I can't make a difference. It's so overwhelming. And what can happen in that situation is the heart begins to harden. We just think it's just too much. There's no way that we can do that. In fact, what can happen is we can almost reach a place of almost depression over it because A, we feel like we cannot do anything about it and B, it's so overwhelming to us where we just see the negative in it. And the point, go ahead and fill these out and then we're gonna talk about it just a little bit further. But it says, the point here is that mercy can morph into depression it can morph into depression when we take God's responsibility instead of our possibility. And I think that's an amazing truth. Because if we take on what we think is our total, now there's a responsibility of mercy and compassion. That's not what the statement is saying. But if we simply look at a situation and we allow the mercy and compassion to become a depression, because we want to take on God's responsibility to, to handle it, we'll never do anything. Does that make sense? I think that makes such sense because we can look at situations even in one person's life and go, how can I ever make a difference in that? What can I, what can I do about that situation? Or what can I do about the, over, the alarming situation of X, Y, or Z, whatever it may be? 
whatever it may be, where you know mercy and compassion is needed, and we just get so overwhelmed. One of the best examples in my life was about four years ago. It's been four, yeah, exactly four, four and a half years ago. And I remember, it was, it is so clear. It was in January when I was teaching uh, Sunday school. And I remember we were doing, I think we were doing actually Proverbs at the time, just a little series at the turn of the year. And I remember asking God, it was, it was through December, through January, and it, as I was thinking about this lesson, I remember just feeling, I don't know, it been maybe weeks of just feeling selfish. I just felt like just a blob of selfishness. It's like I just couldn't get away from my own selfishness. And I just remember asking God, just going, God, I, really, I don't want to feel selfish. I don't want to feel selfish. I, I want to be rid of a selfish heart. And I remember looking we, in conjunction with Proverbs. We were doing Thessalonians at the same time, and there's a verse in there about living out the gospel and living out and sharing life together. It's, just, it's a great verse. And I remember those two just happened to hit in conjunction. I was not brilliant enough to put it together. It was just those things were all merging. You know how that happens? Things are just merging. There's something in your heart going on. You're seeing some scripture. You're beginning to, to just ask God about some things. And I re all of these things were just happening at one time. And lo and behold, if by about four weeks into that, there was someone that was placed in my life that needed some help. And that person came into my life and changed my life completely. And what God did through that person was take away the selfishness. Now, can God take something of our hearts and cleanse it? Absolutely. He, he can do it just like that. But I don't know if you're like me. God has to take me through the experience most of the time to be able to cleanse that out of my heart. Because it takes, a, it takes faith to do that. And I remember stepping into that situation. I remember even just, um, and George did it willingly, but it had to include him too. So I'm like going, this is my answer to prayer. So I'm lassoing you in it too, because he's going, get rid of your selfishness. Go ahead and get four more, because go ahead. But we, we did, we worked through that together. And it was the most amazing, ex but it took faith step by step by step. It became faith in action. And through that faith in action of mercy and compassion, lo and behold, if it didn't change my heart more than I think it ever made a change maybe in that person's life, I don't know. But that's how God works. That's how faith and works go together. He's doing something in our hearts as we reach out in mercy and compassion to somebody else because you can't have mercy and compassion without getting rid of selfish ambition and envy and jealousy. They're not going to work together. You cannot hold on to all of that and do what God's called you to do. One of the principles that I love more than anything, and it's not an excuse because sometimes we can have a huge impact on a mass of people, but always think this way, do for one, at least do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Because sometimes we look at the everyone and we're just like, I can't, I don't have the finances, I don't have the time, I don't have the whatevers. But if you'll think about God, just let me do for one what I would love to do for everyone. It can change. And imagine if the body of Christ begins to look that way. If I could just do for one what I wish I could do for everyone. And sometimes it's more than that, absolutely. But that principle just ran through my head. What I did for one, I would love to have done for every 17-year-old that I knew. But I couldn't. But I could do for one. I could do for one. And I knew that that one was placed in my life not only for mercy and compassion, but to be the church, to be the church. And God just did a work in me that was incredible, that could not have been worked out any other way. That was his design and his plan. It was just being obedient in faith. There were a lot of steps along the way that scared me to death, but I just kept taking those steps by faith, knowing that God had called and to do, to be the action, to be the, 
to be the mercy, and to be the compassion. If we look back at James 2.16, this is pretty, and if anything, we know James is just straightforward to the point. And in James 2.16, this is, um, I'm going to go back to 14 because it just makes sense as we look at it all. It, it's back to what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what's the question? What good is it? What good is it? What is James posing? What he's saying is that someone, now this was to brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to those around, if someone is without clothing or is hungry, and we just go, up, be well fed, stay warm, what good, what, good, lot, what good is that? And, you're, and the expressions on your face, you're going, oh, that's dead faith. It's dead. When God places someone a need specifically in our lives, and we do not respond in faith, when you know you've been called to do something, you just, it's, just, it's cold words, it is superficial faith. It's superficial faith. It's just, it's like saying, and the translation out of the New Living translation says, goodbye and have a good day. Goodbye and have a good day. It's like looking at a need of something that somebody has and just going, goodbye, have a great day. When you know they're not going to have a great day. When you know you're able to meet a need through mercy and compassion. It may not be financial, it may not be material. It may just be your heart. It may be just listening to give dignity. It may be just the mercy and compassion. Somebody in your neighborhood. Somebody that you know God's working on you to go see or go visit for 30 minutes. To set aside what you want to do, what I want to do, and know that God's called you to do something else. Mercy and compassion. Mercy and compassion. I want to um, read just a couple of excerpts, and it's going to be up on the screen. This, is, this book is called The Rise of Christianity, and I've used this in a couple of different ways in a couple of different places, but I actually like the, the front little blurb about this book because basically what this book investigates is from the perspective... And this is what it says. It says, how the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a very few centuries. Now, you think about that. Because we obviously know that Christianity global is huge. The numbers are huge. But if you think about where we are and transported back into the time when James was inspired to write this book and how small the numbers really were how small it really, really was, and how in the world's terminology, how weak it was, not, not in God's economy, but to the world. I mean, it was just this new kind, it was just this new religion, this new way of thinking. And so the investigation was, and this book has looked at, how did it become what it is today? And basically what this book backs up is that early Christianity lived out its faith. It didn't talk about it, it did it. And in so living out their faith through works, the early church just grew enormously. And one of the most interesting examples that, that is documented in ancient writings is in the 200s and the 300s year when the epidemics began to hit the Roman world. And the difference that the church made with its mercy and compassion made the difference in how the church began to grow and how the church reacted, right? This is from around the year 260. 
and there was an, a great epidemic in the Roman world. Now, the Christian, obviously, this is 200 years into the growth of the early church. I'm just going to read this because I think you'll see enormously how the book of James and what we're talking about fits at this. At the height of the second great epidemic, around 260, in an Easter letter already quoted by Dionysus, he wrote a lengthy tribute to the heroic nursing efforts of local Christians. Now, let's think about the Roman world and Christians at that time. Who were the Romans to the Christians even in history? They had been the persecutors, the enemies of, the ones who the, the emperors and, and Caesars had accused of all the maladies of the Roman Empire. I mean, they were the least, the Christians were the least of the least. Remember, they were not, they were not looked upon as, as, you know, the high elite. They were the lowest of low. They were treated the, even through the history of being thrown to the lions, all of it, all of it. So we're not talking about um, a government, a system of, of political influence that looked favorably upon Christians. So in 260, when this epidemic hit, Dionysus is writing about this tribute to the heroic nursing efforts of local Christians, many of whom lost their lives while caring for others. Now, this is from antiquity. This is what was written. Most of our brother Christians showed unabounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, heedless of danger. Now, think about the epidemics of year 260. When there wasn't the medical, obviously not the medical equipment and capability to handle epidemics that were wiping out thousands upon thousands of people just laying in the streets. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely, happily, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves. This is the early church. A faith without works is dead. This, as I read that, I was thinking their faith was alive. It cost them their life, but their faith was vibrant so vibrant. The best of our brothers, it says, many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, winning high commendations so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. Their piety and strong faith in other words, they were acting out, they were doing what God had called them to do. Their faith was with action. It was not dead. Now, the, the writer goes on to say that Dionysus emphasized the heavy mortality of the epidemic by asserting how much happier survivors would be had Survivors would be had they merely, like the Egyptians in the time of Moses, lost the firstborn from each house. For there is not a house in which there is not one dead, how I wish it had been only one. But while the epidemic had not passed over the Christians, he suggested, the pagans began to fear much, fare much worse. Dionysus also offered the explanation of this mortality difference, having noted at length how the Christian community nursed the sick and dying, and even spared nothing in, pre in preparing the dead for proper burial. And it goes on to say that because what the pagans would do was they would abandon the sick. In fact, most moved away if they could, whereas the Christian community stayed in the trenches, nursing, taking care of. And it goes on to say that... Um, Dionysus also offered this explanation for proper burial. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. All right, later on, about a um, hundred years later, there was another epidemic that hit the Roman Empire. And um, Julius began to, he wrote um, a couple of letters that have been preserved, and he made these comments again about the Christian community, looking at them, trying to figure out why did they do what they do? 
Why do they do what they do? Why do they do in the midst of an epidemic? Why are they going into it rather than fleeing from it? What is compelling them to do what they do? And he couldn't understand it because when he looked at his God's S that he looked at, there was nothing of mercy and compassion to compel them to one another. When you look at the, the scriptures, we know that we're called to love one another. We know that we're called as community to take care of one another. We're also taught to love ourselves as our neighbor or love our neighbor as ourselves. We know that. That compels us. If we know that and we live that faith out, are we going to flee or do we go into the midst of it? That was the dynamite that exploded the church. The disaster of the epidemics and how the church reacted as we look at the rise of Christianity over those, those first hundreds of years, it was a disastrous situation that the church was compelled by the love of Christ to act. Their faith was not dead. And Julius makes these comments. There will be a couple of them on the screen. I'm going to read a little bit more of it just so you can get the gist of it. This was a hundred years later when the emperor Julian, I said Julius, but Julian, thus a century later, the emperor Julian launched a campaign to institute pagan charities. So in other words, what he was doing was he was going to say, we're going to have to rival this thing called Christianity. And we're going to be charitable just as well because he began to see what was happening in the Christian community and the effect and the power that it was having over the people. So he wanted to institute pagan charities in an effort to match the Christians. Julian complained in a letter to the high priest. Now, the high priest was in pagan religion in Galatia in 362 that the pagans needed to equal the virtues of Christians. For recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if pretended. Now, that was in Julian's eyes. He thought, well, they, this can't be real. I mean, he was just saying, it, for real? I mean, what just happened? He was saying, it, even if it was pretended, it was still making, he was just not willing to say that a heart, I think it was basically he was saying a heart can't really do that. And maybe he was right, that a heart really can't do that unless we're compelled by the Spirit to do so. But he wanted to equal that by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. He, he recognized the difference. It goes on to say, in a letter to another priest, Julian wrote, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priest, the, impi the, uh, the impious Galileans, now who are the Galileans? He was just calling that those coming from they were Christians, that area of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, where this whole thing, you know, just erupted, where this thing came from. Um, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. And he also wrote, the impious Galileans support not, this is, this is it. This is, this is not something we can just take a look at and go, oh, well. The impious Galileans, not, they support not only their poor, in other words, those that believe like they do, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And what we see is the mercy and compassion exhibited by the church was one of the factors that the church grew. Is that true today? Of course it is. Of course it is. And here's what I would just ask you, and, and we have to ask the church this question, and I think I have to ask myself this question. Is it more important that we make a point or we make a difference? Is it more important that the church make a point Oh, we can be right, scripturally, biblically right. But are we making the point? Are we living it out to make a difference? And I think there is a huge, huge difference in those two things. Because if the church 
yeah, and I'll just put it this way. Yeah, I think that's the reason why a lot of people hate church, that look from the outside, looking in. They just feel like the church is just there to make a point. Now, they may misread that. That's true. But is the church just trying to make a verbal point, or is the church literally getting out to make a difference? And I ask that strongly to myself and to this church that's so early in its birth because the desire is to make a difference, not a point. But it takes an on-track looking in the Scriptures constantly to be held accountable for that. And that we're just not verbally speaking the point. That we are actively, one by one, desiring to make a difference. What good is it? What good is it? What good is it? Let's fill in these last couple quotes and then we'll break for small group. There's a couple of things to think about. One is, it is not the form of the statement that is reprehensible. Talking about goodbye and have a good day, just, you know, just sort of sloughing a need off. But when that statement, but it's functioning as a religious cover for the failure to act. When we just say those words as a religious cover and we fail to act on it as a church and as an individual. Point number four about a good life, one, one that is full of good fruit. And that's verse 17. And there's a beautiful uh, statement here to finish it out. Reflect on a rich statement written by Dr. James B. Adamson that fruit is both an end and a beginning, the crown of one process and the germ of the next being present in the seed. Now, what in the world? What in the world? That means that every time that we choose to act out of mercy, choose to act out of compassion rather than selfish ambition, rather than out of envy and jealousy and bitterness, and we choose to act out of mercy and compassion, we choose to live a life that's characterized by forgiveness, choose to live a life that is full of mercy, that what we've done is we've planted something that God can use. He plants something in us, and then from that, another seed falls, and then more fruit can be grown. And it goes from one to the next to the next. We're literally seed from what the early church did in an epidemic back in the year 200. I mean, I, we're linked together as a Christian community. We can look at that early church and say, seed fell, seed fell, seed fell. So as we are doing our faith and living it out, seed is falling that God can use and grow it again and again and again. Faith without action is dead. Faith with action is what? It's alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again. You know, it's um, just thinking back of the legacy that we come from as the Christian community. That God, we desire in our churches to make a difference. You've spoken to us. I didn't speak. You've spoken to us clearly through the book of James. And where our action, where we've just had good intentions. And when we get a year down the road, God, when we get five years down the road, when we get to the 2020 mark, will we look back and say, God, I had good intentions. Goodbye and have a good day. I had good intentions. Or will we be able to say, by faith, I acted. And in the fullness of your spirit, for your glory, a difference was made. 
God, I pray over this group that's gathered that we will bear much fruit. I pray that you will pull up out of every single one of us envy and strife and jealousy, insecurity, selfish ambition, and you will replace it with the fullness of you. To make a difference. Maybe what we will do for one, what we can do for one. In Jesus' name, amen.